I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and dealmaking is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and dealmakers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a dealmaker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. I'm really excited about uh, today's episode, but I have a bit of a bias because uh, today's guest is uh, is not only a, a former client of, uh, of Firepowers, but uh, a close friend of mine. We developed a, uh, a very meaningful relationship through the process of, uh, of selling Steve's uh, last company. So please help me in welcoming uh, Steve Blanchett. Steve, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Elan. Look forward to the discussion. Absolutely. So, Steve, I was just saying to you off camera that I obviously know that the later parts of your career, uh, and for people that don't know, Steve is a successful entrepreneur, had uh, bought a company called uh, CSR, but you'll tell the whole story because it wasn't, wasn't called CSR originally. I know you changed the name, which was a uh, cosmetics uh, contract manufacturer and uh, landed up selling it to a South Korean public company, which we could talk about at length and I'm sure we'll have fun talking about the cultural differences uh, of business period uh, around the world. And Steve is now in his, uh, I guess, quasi-retirement because now he is also the uh, founder and chairman of a new cosmetic brand, which is um, pretty exciting. And the the brand's called Mob Beauty. So we'll we'll, we'll definitely talk about that as well. But Steve, to get us started, uh, for those who obviously don't know you the way I know you, you know, maybe you could just talk about the CSR quickly and then what you did there and, and kind of the, the, the timeline. And then I want to go right back to the beginning and talk about, you know, how the heck you got to this entrepreneurial journey. Life is strange. And sometimes the decisions you make at certain periods of time, you have no perspective of where that's going to lead you. And, and I guess that's kind of how the story started for me in that um, I took a position I was currently living in Toronto, took a position in Los Angeles with a private equity group. And my position with them was to help them look at acquisitions in the field of contract manufacturing. And contract manufacturing could have been anything from personal care products, color cosmetics, or any particular area of uh, of focus. And what that did was led, um, led us to acquire several companies through a period of two or three years. And you know the, the private equity model, build, build mass, turn it around. Hopefully that's one and one equals three. So we quickly acquired several companies around Los Angeles, in um, Georgia as well. And in particular, there was a company we acquired called Comar. And Comar's main office was located in Port Jervis, New York. Comar uh, had several facilities worldwide. One was in... Um, Mexico City, they had a Corona California plant, a plant in Australia, a plant obviously in New Jersey, New York rather, and also a plant in uh, just north of Toronto here in Barrie. The other function that I had with them, of course, is to help develop sales, develop new business for those facilities. Long story made short, they asked if I would come back to Toronto, just north of Toronto, Barrie, and then run the Canadian facility, which I, I did in year 2000. So at that time, I became um, the uh, general manager of what was then called Colmar Canada. And unfortunately, for the next couple of years, the whole organization was not doing well. 
And when it wasn't doing well, obviously there wasn't a lot of investment and capital being spent. And accordingly, it was getting challenging from a business standpoint. So our business decreased significantly from 2000 up until 2005, 2006. It became really evident to me that the existing owners had no interest in continuing to invest and, and build the business. So the idea came, well, what could I do with this company? Because the foundation of the company, Elan, was great. The employees, that company had been there for, at that time, 50 years. So it was well entrenched in the community. There was a good workforce. Everybody there knew the business very well. There were some dedicated customers who had been there a long period of time. However, that was starting to wane because they could see that the company was getting in distress financially and they weren't sure how long the company was going to be around. So I approached the parent company at that time and said, if you do not have an interest in this company, I'll buy the company from you. And that process took, oh gosh, close to a year and a half, two years, because it was their focus to want to go to market and leverage whatever they could an interest in the company. Long story made short, we were able to secure Comar Canada from the parent company in January 2008. Had I known what was going to happen in the fall of 2008, I don't know how that might have changed things, but... Well, well you know what, luckily you didn't know because it all worked out in the end, so... You know, it's uh, sometimes uh, not, not knowing is a blessing. Well, and to my point, sometimes you make these decisions and you don't know where it's going to take you. And thankfully, it worked out very, very well. So in the acquisition process, we were not able to maintain the name Colmar. So we changed the name to CSR Cosmetic Solutions, which I had two, uh, three other partners at the time that I bought the company. That went on for two and a half years. And... Um, you know, I guess one of the things that ever uh, was said to me, and it's kind of turned fortuitous, but I'll tell you, it's, I'm kind of hypocritical when I make the statement. One of my advisors said, you know, there's two types of ships you don't want to be on, a sinking ship and a partnership. So, <laughs> so as it turns out, I um, was able to buy out my other three partners in 2011 and was the sole owner until, as you know, when you entered the scene and uh, was looking to bring, bring some equity and some ownership changes in 2017. The funny thing is, is you landed up selling to Colmar Korea. I mean, talk, talk about full circle. <laughs> That's almost a two-hour session in itself, as you know. But just to clarify for those people who might be listening, Colmar, being its, its corporate entity focused in the North America, did have technology agreements with two Asian companies one called Nihon Colmar in Japan, and the other one called Colmar Korea. There was no ownership rights in that relationship, just technology exchange. And somewhere in those agreements, Colmar North America gave those Asian operations the right to take the Colmar name. So that's how the Colmar name got uh, populated. And you're right, ironically, it was Colmar Korea who came to the table with uh, exceptional interest in the CSR business. And as you know, we consummated the deal with them. So Steve, I love your story. And for a couple of reasons, you know, I speak to a lot of, of younger entrepreneurs and I'm not going to age you, Steve, of course not, but everyone speaks about entrepreneurship in a way that kind of alludes to the fact that it's a young man's or young woman's game. And I don't think that's fair. I think that there's a lot of successful uh, entrepreneurs that have learned through the journey 
of being in the corporate world and and seeing the things that big corporations have made mistakes, where they've succeeded, how they've scaled, and uh, you're living proof that uh, you know it's never too late to just to start that entrepreneurial journey. I mean, would you agree with that kind of hesitation that the market kind of tells you? I would totally agree, Lana. I think it, it doesn't just stop with the perception that it's a younger person's game. I think if you think about entrepreneurship, the focus on entrepreneurship tends to become centered around individual. And a lot of entrepreneurs are people just do things on their own. They go ahead and they make it happen. But both of those things, age and putting the right structure in place to be a successful entrepreneur are probably opposite to what the perception is. And you're absolutely right. Um, my entrepreneurial acquisition focus, I was in my mid-50s when that happened. Uh, not the ideal time, but in some ways it was the ideal time. And it was the ideal time because of the maturity, the circumstances, and the resources on a business level that I had been able to acquire that allowed for there to be success in buying the company and running the company and successfully selling it. And the other thing, which I think is very, very important in being an entrepreneur is, yes, there's certain acumens that go in a personality that become helpful in being an entrepreneur. But I think the one thing we all forget and the one thing that we got to do is, what is the team like around you? And that happens when you decide you're going to make a, a business venture or whatever that happens to be for you all the way through to the time that you decide you're going to make some sort of change. And for me, it was, it was time to move on and, and to bring some new ownership into the company. Yeah. And it's so funny. I mean, you know, identifying that team that's right for the, for you as an individual takes a ton of self-awareness. And, and in a way I find, you know, people really underestimate and in a way disrespect how important experiences. It's the one thing that's the one thing you cannot hack. Experience is, is a function of time. And uh, I find that people who, who speak about you know, entrepreneurship as a young person's game, it's like, are you forgetting about how many lessons you learn along the way and, and how you become more self-aware? And I can tell you personally how much I've learned from all the failures that I've had in the past and how much easier it would be to build what I've built now versus when I first started. Yeah, and totally, totally right on, Elan. I guess with age and maturity goes some realization of fallibility. And it's not fallibility to the degree that it paralyzes you and you can't do things. I think it's a strong fallibility in understanding really what your strengths and weaknesses are and surrounding yourself with those things that you need guidance and help and strength. You know, we all wake up in the morning, we look in the mirror and say, look at how good I am. And then we go to our businesses and we're bombarded with challenges. And what do we do when we have those challenges? We access people who can help us make right decisions. So surrounding yourself with the right people, and it's not just in running your business, which is critical, but in your personal entrepreneurial career, surrounding yourself with people that can help you minimize mistakes because we're all going to make mistakes and be able to capitalize on those. And the other side is keep you emotionally level. You and I can both recall the many ups and downs we had in the, the ride we took from listing CSR to the time we sold. 
thankfully more ups than downs, but there were always questions and things that were emotionally impactful. Those are, those are issues are when if you have a good team, they can help you keep, stay focused on making right decisions, not just emotional decisions. And what you're really alluding to outside of your operational team is, is, is mentorship, right? And that mentorship can come from from many different places. I know it can come. I know you have a phenomenal wife who you lean on, uh, you know, quite often, and you have another, you have other networks of entrepreneurs around you. And it's inter- interesting. I mean, without fail, and, and you, you probably haven't re- listened to a, you know, more than a few of my podcasts, but without fail, successful entrepreneurs speak to me about mentorship. What is it about that mentorship that's important besides the obvious of keeping you level-headed, helping you not make mistakes? Is there anything else that's kind of just like, more intangible that is important about that having that mentor around you? I think it's a couple of things. I think one is truly security. Business is lonely as you get further to the top. Let's, you know, that's just a fact. So being able to have a network that allows you, if it is nothing else, to be able to talk and vent and get those frustrations out of your system is critically important. And the other side is I think I probably learned more from bad mentors versus good mentors because not everybody is going to be a great mentor and we aspire to be and we try to be, but then in being a good mentor, there's a lot of things that have to come together. A, there has to be a connection from a personal standpoint. There has to be some synergies in terms of uh, how you operate and how you think and Some of the things that I've learned more have been when I've had someone that has challenged me in areas that, not that the challenge was bad, but the direction truly wasn't comfortable for me, but I learned about that. And I learned how that works or didn't work. So it helped me keep focused on what was good in terms of mentorship and not mentorship going going forward. How do you identify a bad mentor? Because I think that that's really interesting. I've never heard someone say that they learn more from bad mentors. And I want to explore that a little further. Because as a younger or you know, less experienced or less successful, whatever it is, I mean, there's typically a power dynamic difference between a mentor and a mentor relationship. How do you quickly identify when you have a bad mentor and when to trust your gut versus theirs when you're being told that the reason you have a mentor is to trust their gut? One of the things that's critically important is understanding what the mentor's objectives are. Because you can have someone who has a mentor position in your life or your career, but do they, are they there to mentor? Are they there to continue to run and fulfill their own objectives within their own careers and their own lives versus saying, I'm here to help make you successful versus I'm here to have more success myself. And those are type of things that it may take some time to be able to ferret through all of the issues that go on. But The definition of a good mentor is when you know they're really there for you and your success and you're not questioning your decisions because they want it to be their decision and based on what they get out of that decision. Kind of a common theme I'm seeing as you're talking is like this innate belief in the importance of self-awareness. And, you know, I'm a massive believer. One of the lines I use, and I don't know if I made it up or if I heard it, but I truly believe that self-awareness is the key that unlocks potential. Because if you don't know what you're good at, and you don't know what you're good at, you're not good at, you really can't double down on those strengths. Do you think about self-awareness as a thing unto itself and, and really explore that in your own abilities? Or is this something that's come naturally and it's just inherent in, in, in what you were born as? 
I think it's a little bit of both. If I look back at my career, I was always interested in trying new things and trying those new things, of course, in a business aspect was what is the next step in a career to learn something and to potentially gain another position within an organization. And I was very fortunate, although when I started my career, I worked with a very large organization. Luckily, they were totally entrepreneurial. Did they have training? Yes. But for the most part, if you took a, a position of responsibility and had people reporting to you, it was what you did and how you did it dictated your success. So did you stub your toe? Absolutely. Did you run into some walls? Absolutely. But they gave you the opportunity to do that. And by doing it that way, for me, it was a good environment because it allowed me to grow, it allowed me to breathe, it allowed me to learn the things that were important. But also, you sure became aware of some of your limitations on a personal and, and on a business level. And combining those two things of that awareness, which comes with time, it is with some people that awareness comes earlier, some people it comes a little bit later, but it truly helps in balancing who you are as an entrepreneur, who you are as a person, who you are as a business person, because that balance, I think, is really the key to being successful or not successful. This podcast is called The Dealmaker's DNA because, as you know, I'm, I speak a lot about genetics and you know, how much of one's abilities are just you're born with versus you know, how much is, is, is nurtured. Do you have a view on that? I mean, you know, I think I've had this conversation with you and I'm a massive believer that we're a lot more nature than I think people like to give us credit. You know, people love to believe that they can be anything they want to be. And I, I just don't believe that. I think that we're born with some skill sets that are just ignored. Some people are born as leaders, some people aren't, but people disagree with me on that. What's your view on that, on that balance between nature and nurture? And I know you have children, so you probably have firsthand knowledge of how much of, a, of, of their personalities were just like, that's how you know, they, they, they were born. I think, again, um, maybe I can talk a little bit about my, my upbringing. I was very fortunate in that my dad was a doctor. My mother, she graduated in honors math and science in uh, the mid-40s, which was odd for women at the time you even go to university. Now, she chose to be home with... Uh, four boys, lucky her. And, uh, but the common denominator for me was the confidence they gave all of us to be able to make decisions, commitment to decisions, and to be what we're talking about now, introspective in terms of what's right and what's wrong. So that was the um, foundation that helped for me growing up and through my, all of my career. And I think helped me make decisions that were, you know, for the most part, the right decisions for me. Do I believe in answering to your question that you can be anything you think want to be? No, I'm, I'm kind of halfway on that fence. I think with we all have limitations. Sooner we can accept and, and, and recognize those limitations, that's a benefit because then it allows us to go down the path where we have an opportunity for more success. I would love to have been an NHL hockey player. You know something? It wasn't going to happen. So through life's bumps and, and roads and turns and everything else, as long as you start recognizing that this is what I'm good at and take pride in that and not wallow in the things that we may not be that good on and good in, then it allows us to be more successful. So that's kind of where I sit in that kind of environment. It's a great transition to kind of the early days. You, you speak about your parents uh, with, with, with reverence and uh, you know, allude to the fact that they were instrumental in helping you gain confidence and, and, and so that you can make the right decisions for yourself. 
What are some of the tools that you think parents can use to foster that confidence, creativity, you know, non-conformity, creative thinking? Like, are there things that you think about as you raised your children or you see around you that you would definitely not do or definitely do? Yeah, there's there's obviously things I, I think we all experience as parents that we, we go back and go, oops, maybe I won't do that again. I'm kind of philosophical on that. If you have a good... I guess moral foundation and are brought up on the apps of the it within the foundation of what is right and what is wrong. And I'm not sitting there saying I never did anything wrong or challenged the system when I grew up, but I knew and there was no doubt. I knew what was right. And I, and I knew what was wrong. That is probably the one thing that sticks with me. And I believe and will share with anybody because we all run into people who have children and those children are at different ages and stages of their, of their development. And they say, and particularly teenagers, teenagers go off and do silly and stupid things. If they have a foundation of what is right and wrong, my belief is that will help them carry through the tough decisions and will help them come back to where they need to be because that never leaves you. So what, for all of those people who have teenage kids and they would like to kill them, this is a time when, you know, you listen more than you have ever listened to your children. And even though you don't think they're hearing you, trust me, they are hearing you. And I can give you an example. One of, I have, as you know, four kids. And uh, one of my kids was challenged when uh, they were, you know, 15, 16, 17, a little bit wayward. But through time and patience, my son has now come around and he is a very happy father with few beautiful children. And uh, it's great. But I firmly believe it was that foundation that he got that helped him get there. How do you think you, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs I speak to grew up with, you know, less than middle class. And, you know, then they have created wealth and their children have grown up with kind of less hunger than them. How important do you think that hunger is? And and I'll use a, a sports reference. You hear a lot, that cliche that, you know, heavyweight champions, you know, fall from grace pretty quickly because it's hard to get up and work out when you wake up and sell sheets. Is that something that you've thought about with your, your own children or is that something you've observed? Because it's something I think about a lot is how to, how to maintain that level of hunger within my own children. I think everybody has a different view of what that's supposed to be for their own kids. We've always been of the belief that um, the kids have to work for what they have. We will provide a, a base for them, which gives them an opportunity that some other people may not have. It's not like uh, you wake up every morning and there's a present under the tree. That's just not the way we've operated, and we don't believe in that. And uh, give you an example, my youngest daughter had gone to undergrad at, uh, in uh, St. Francis Xavier, and she came home one day and she said, Dad, I want to do a graduate degree in Australia. And I'm saying she was going to go to law. And I said, um, well, you know, there's lots of good law schools in Canada. And matter of fact, lots of good law schools right close to home. And so she was adamant this is what she wanted to do. And I said, well, then that's fine. You got to have skin in the game. This has got to be done by you. And you have to take on the risk because without it, that's part of your education. So there is always a balance between the tough love and encouraging them to try new things, but be challenged because there has to be responsibility with them. So I want to switch gears a little bit. You spoke about a little earlier, you spoke about how your first job was a large organization, but it was quite entrepreneurial. 
maybe you could walk me through, you know, your career path in medium amount of detail, I guess, um, uh, that got you to the, you know, the point where you, you did become that entrepreneur after acquiring uh, Colmar Canada and, and, and then CSR. And, you know, whether they're, you know, looking back, whether there was some fortuitous uh, experiences that you had that, that, that kind of said, okay, well, this is, this was obvious. This was a path I was going to be on because of these things that I did. I just maybe didn't see it at the time. I, just wanna, I, I also want to hear your story. I'm, I'm, I'm just quite interested to hear that, that progression. Yeah, I um, graduated uh, from University of Toronto with a degree focused in uh, business and economics. And ironically, that had nothing to do with my first job. It was, here's a job. It was paying reasonably well. So you, you start and, uh, and start at that uh, particular uh, job function. And that was in the uh, contract manufacturing world for the manufacturing of uh, powders and products like that, household products. And I was uh, in the quality control department. And uh, it was a good, a good opportunity for me because it really gave you a vision of what being able to do daily, and this was fairly physical work for the people in the plant, what they did, the pride they took in doing their job, and how that led to success within the organization. Fortunate enough through that, uh, Elan, to be able to move into different positions in the company. So uh, went from quality control to production management, decided, okay, I've got a good experience from the operations side, now want to get into the sales side. So was able to do that. And then through the company growing, I was able to take a position out in Vancouver as a general manager of a small plant that was a subsidiary plant to this particular organization and uh, help run that. So I was very fortunate through the relatively early times in my career that um, when there was opportunities, I was able to jump on those, was giving those, given those opportunities. And in hindsight, it was an incredible basis by which allowed me to make some of the decisions that I did make in my career going forward. In the move, and, and I left that company uh, in the early, well, 93, 94. Is that company still around? Uh, yes, that company is still around and still very successful. Not in contract manufacturing anymore, but a very successful company. They'd be probably over a couple of billion dollars in sales. So they're a fairly large organization. Um, decided uh, uh, the change was was required, so moved to... Uh, to, uh, to Los Angeles, as I referenced earlier in our conversation. And what was helpful in being successful in that position, of course, was knowing all the things and the experiences that I'd had in my previous career allowed me to be very, I think, very diligent in understanding in the contract manufacturing world what was important, what was not important, what was the definition of a successful company and the, the potential pitfalls of companies that were not so successful. And as well, having been at that senior level, it gave me the opportunity to understand certain things that became critical in turn to me relative to what I would call pillars of success or the pillars the company should be based on and what you got to be looking at to be sure that you're successful. And I'll talk about those in just a second. Uh, so what happened then, as I, ta- as I said to you, couple of years out in California, which was a great time. Who would ever have uh, said, okay, you're going to leave California and come to Barrie where there's going to be snow, but... That is a massive change. (laughs) It is, but that's been fortuitous too, because there's lots of good things that have happened here. So in coming to the facility in in Barrie, you know, there was 
some things that were very good and very solid. As I mentioned earlier, the, the people there knew the business. They were committed. They had um, experience and a desire to continue to grow the organization. However, as you can appreciate going through the transition that the company did, there was so many challenges. And financially, when in fact, we ended up buying the company land, we were losing close to a million dollars on the EBITDA line. So you can appreciate all of the challenge that, that were going on. But with my career having experience in terms of seeing some of those successful criteria, it became very evident very quickly, where do we have to focus to turn this around? And uh, very proud of the people in the company and their commitment because within a year we were above the zero line in EMITDA and in fact, we're up to about two to 300,000 within a year and a half. So there was a lot of good basis there. It just needed rejuvenation. It needed some support, needed some money and needed some leadership to be able to take us from the, uh, the red ink into, uh, into positive uh, financial results. And of course, and it grew from there. Once the company was stable, then it's, what do we do now? How do we continue to grow the business? And uh, for me, it was the experience that I had in innovation, research and development, and how do we position CSR into an area where we're going to become much more profitable, but much larger relative to where we are. So that was a whole plan and development in terms of how we're going to continue to grow the organization. So we brought on people, spent some money. Along the way, of course, we had a company that was relatively obsolete from a capital standpoint. So we're always spending money and upgrading our facilities and our equipment and processes to the degree that um, we got to a stage where we were, um, and I guess this was in 2014, 2015, saying, okay, the business is now changing and the environment for our business is changing. So we've got to change as well, which really was interesting because it identified a major issue within where our company was and where we needed to be to continue to grow. And it became very apparent that there was a lot of people in the company that had been there long periods of time, and you had met several of them, and they were very committed, very focused on doing a good job, very difficult in some ways for that old genre to understand well, why do we have to change because the business outside of our environment is changed. And the other challenge was we've been here now for over 60 years. So obviously we're doing something right. Why do we change? So I'm sure most people who run companies who are entrepreneurs run into that in their organization, change management, how do you inject new energy, new vision, new strategy. So that became a real focus for us you know, in 2014. And also led to a decision by myself and my wife, particularly saying, you know, maybe the time has come to look at bringing some new investment into the organization. And what was that going to look like? We didn't know. But um, the focus for us was, and particularly for myself, when we talked about this a little earlier, Elan, was I am a firm believer that Companies that do not change their senior management on a regular basis experience, for me, what I call owner malaise. In other words, the people who had worked with me for long periods of time, they know me. They knew how I made decisions. They knew what I'd react to and how I would react. Not that you didn't try to change it up, but you are who you are. 
So for us to move to the next level, it became apparent to me that we needed new leadership in my position and new leadership in several of the other positions going forward to help take the company to the next level. And those things happen post the acquisition until I left uh, this past December. So those were kind of the, the, the stepping stones that I think have left the company in good shape. They're continuing to grow and they, they're in a, in a position to continue in a very successful mode. So Steve, you mentioned earlier the pillars of success. Maybe you can uh, be prescriptive about what you think those pillars are for uh, people listening. Yeah, I think the first thing is your people. Again, it comes back to us looking ourselves in the mirror every day and thinking how good we are. You know something? Yeah, you probably are. But the people are really good for us, for the people on the floor doing their job day in and day out. Because without them, their commitment, their personalities and, and the culture that they themselves help develop in the company we wouldn't uh, have been successful. So your people are, in my mind, a very important pillar, which translates into your culture. You know, those are, are very, very important things. Coupled with that is, is transparency and honesty on all levels. We uh, spent a lot of time, and partly because I like to talk and maybe people didn't want to hear me, but get up in front of people, get in front of your employees, get in front of your your vendors, get in in front of your customers and be visible and talk and hear what they have to say. And from that, you develop relationships that may not appear to be of value, but down the road, though, that opportunity to have a close relationships with all those bodies within your organization and outside your organization will help you be successful. So the transparency and honesty. And um, the other thing was, uh, you know, how do you reward? I read um, uh, a thing just recently with all of the COVID stuff that's going on. And because those businesses, which are, you know, a lot of them are decimated, a lot of them are are in trouble and will continue to be in trouble. There was a um, sort of a podcast by Mark Cuban and he said something and I thought, you know, he's so right. Share your, your fortune, not your fortune, but share your success with other people. And what he was saying within the companies is make your employees shareholders. Make your employees have a piece of the, the company at any level because that will bring to them pride, success, the opportunities to improve their life on many levels, but will also be a big important factor in your organization's ability to continue to grow and right now in COVID come out of a difficult time and be successful much quicker. You mentioned culture a few times and I know that that's something I know you well and I know it's something you take pride in. Culture has become this buzzword in a lot of ways and I think a lot of people just don't know like tactically how does one build and foster a good culture. I mean, obviously, you mentioned transparency. That's absolutely a piece of the puzzle. But are there other things that people need to be aware of as they embark on building a better culture? Because I totally believe that culture is, if not the most important, probably one of the most important. And one of the things that I've said is that, you know, to, to Mark Cuban's point of what you just mentioned, it's the companies that overinvested in culture that get to now take those chips and cash them in during COVID and ask people to help them out. It's the ones that didn't give a shit where their employees say, I, what do I care whether you succeed or fail? So I totally agree. So, so going back to the question, it's tactics. What would you recommend a leader do to help build and foster culture? 
Well, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, people look to the, the senior leaders that set the atmosphere within an organization. So if you're not, and this is pretty simple business 101, but if you're not practicing the things that you are asking your employees to live by, then you're never going to have a culture that you have prescribed or a strategy is how you want that organization to be. So that's kind of simple. Just do what you say you're going to do and, and show that you're going to do it. And that doesn't mean you have to be afraid of being right all the time. You can't be right all the time. So be comfortable in the fact that sometimes you're going to be wrong, but within the right culture, you want your employees to challenge you on that. You want them to come in and say, you know, Steve, I didn't agree with that for these reasons. And were you aware? And, you know, sometimes you may not be aware. That's the type of openness that you want, but allows people to see you and you're living the, the values that you want them to live. The other thing that's more important, and, and this is going to lead into the discussion around the latest venture at Mob Beauty, is hiring people that understand the principles of your culture. And so instead of us having job descriptions when we hire now, we talk about our culture first and foremost. If someone is applying for a job at a certain level and they've come to you, you can assume for the most part they're reasonably experienced in the physical skills you need them to be, but do they fit? So fit is, for me, critically important in terms of help establishing the basis of your culture and continuing that culture. So in the interview process, most people will say, do you have a job description? Well, yeah, we have a job description. But with us, we say, we don't want to talk about job description right now. We want to talk about culture and have people understand and committed to that culture. And, you know, sometimes they'll align, sometimes they won't. But if they don't, okay, that's the, a good process in being able to understand they're not a fit and will not continue to align with us. Therefore, it doesn't help your culture. The other thing is, is continuing to reinforce the positives around good culture and have discussions around the negatives of bad culture and the things we don't do. So that continual communication, those kind of those three steps kind of help in terms of keeping the culture and moving the culture, because it isn't just, we're fortunate enough in, in mob and that we're a brand new company. So we have the right to set the culture from the start. When I came into CSR, that had been a company around for 50 years. You can imagine everybody's perception and different perception of what the culture had been and should be coupled with all of the, the trauma that they'd gone through from a, a lack of finances. So you mentioned mob. I mean, you, you just couldn't stay retired. I see. It was just, uh, it wasn't in the cards. I was for a couple of days, I think. And uh, interestingly enough, it's been a great experience. Now I'm not having to put in the 40 and 60 and 80 hours a week. And that was critically important in terms of if I'm going to go and do something new, I want to have more flexibility. Otherwise I would have stayed at CSR and continued to run that company. But yeah, it's been, a, it's exciting. It's different, different in from, Instead of being on the innovation manufacturing side, we're on the marketing innovation side, which is now a customer to where I was a supplier, which has been good. And um, I think setting a, a new company into a, a pretty heavy populated industry with some really unique values and differentiations that the industry needs. We've got a, you know, just a, a phenomenal leadership team. Our CEO has been in the industry for not quite as long as me, but for many years. And he's a great innovator. He's a great uh, formulator. He's just so positive. Sometimes I have a hard time listening to him. He's so positive all the time, but that's good. 
And we brought on uh, some, we have about six employees now and our leaders in the uh, sales and marketing and the innovation are just very positive, hardworking and excited, motivated people. So that in itself is something that's very exciting for me and, and I'm looking forward to it. So what's the goal with Mob, not, not only just from the business standpoint, but for you to get involved, what's the personal motivation behind that involvement? I mean, obviously you're trying to get something from that experience now. I think the first thing that was kind of important to me, and, and it wasn't waking up one day and say, okay, well now I'm retired, so let's go do something. There had been some discussion about Mob and, and was how was it going to come together and was it going to come together and, and philosophically how those things could uh, meld into a good company. But for me, there was kind of two critical stages. A, it's new and different. It's not it's something I have some experience in, certain, in those areas, which means I can rely on some of my experience. But one of the things that's been, I guess, consistent with me is that if there's a new opportunity, I want to try it. So this was very much in line with a new opportunity. It is entrepreneurial, and it just keeps my motivation going. I get excited waking up every day saying, hey, I can participate in this and help make a difference. And I think all of the founders believe it's time for a paradigm shift within our industry. And we see ourselves as an opportunity to help move what we call move beauty forward in terms of, you know, the sustainability efforts, the uh, what we call clean cosmetics and uh, having our customers that are employees first, which is what our credo is in our organization. And we're excited about, you know, continuing to move that uh, in the in the right direction. How important do you think having a purpose that you really believe in is to long-term success? I mean, clearly this is a, a venture that has deep roots in, in, in purpose for you. Now, was that always the case or is that a luxury of choice? For me, I mean, it was, it was kind of fortuitous that uh, when we started talking about Mob, one of the cr- critical uh, founders and I were very much aligned with what we saw as an opportunity forward for the industry and the business. If that had not aligned between the two of us, I'm not sure I would have participated in this. But because it did, it was very interesting, exciting, and said, yeah, I want to be, be part of that. So it was kind of the opportunity presented itself. There was alignment of, of how we think the company can be successful and uh, present something that's new, refreshing, and, and helpful to the industry in its entirety. That's sort of that, what I mean by the luxury of choice. I mean, you wouldn't have pursued that. I guess in your earlier career, one needs a job. One needs to look for the next step. Now, do you think it's really important to always have that purpose and, and passion at top of mind? Or is it sometimes it's just like, start doing and you'll figure out what you're passionate about? Which way do you see it fitting? I think it's, a, it's an evolution. I think there's a little bit of both. I think as we... And that's what we talk about. You, not everybody can do everything that they think they can. I mean... People who are are doctors and people who have different careers, for the most part, they've had that vision for themselves somewhere early in their teen years or wherever it's saying, you know, I want to be a doctor. And there's influences that they've had that help foster that type of uh, desire. A lot of us, and I can say for myself, when I came out of school, I didn't have a vision of I'm going to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to be this and be that. It was 
as I got into business and I was excited about being in business, some of the things that I saw as opportunities that were, I think, good for business, but importantly, were motivational for me, started becoming very passionate. And those are the type of things that drove my actions as to what I was going to do and potentially do as a next step. So for me, when I took on an opportunity, there was always an understanding of what I thought could happen, how I thought it could happen. And there was an objective of what the thing could look like and how it could look and be better. Before I let you go, because I promised an hour and I'll stick to it. You know, there's going to be some people that are, are young listening to this uh, podcast, people that are stuck in corporate jobs that are all thinking the same thing. You know, man, uh, so envious that, you know, I'm listening to a story about someone who took the leap and took the risk and, and bought a company and landed up fulfilling, you know, the, the objectives and, and, and doing really well by selling that business. What are some things of, uh, you know, of advice that you can give to those individuals, um, you know, as they, as they sit in potentially a situation they don't want to be in and want something more for their lives? The first thing I'd say is, welcome to the club. We've all, all been there. So don't let that be strictly the motivator for making a change and continuing to jump. I think if you're going to make a change, you've got to have some idea of why you're making the change. And it could be a variety of different reasons. If you're with a bad company and culturally it doesn't fit, yeah, those are, those are good reasons to make some changes. But I think for the most part, a lot of things have to come together on a, on a variety of different levels for people to finally reach their goals. But two things I'd say, first of all, be patient. If you are patient, you will know when the right situation comes along for you, probably because you've made the right choices and have created that situation. And don't be afraid to make the right change. And, but that's a, that's a loaded statement because the you know, optimal word is right change. But don't be afraid to do that. Because if you're afraid to do that, then something will happen and you'll say, you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda, and uh, you don't want to be in that situation. So if you're at that stage where you want to make those changes, do your own personal due diligence. Nobody knows yourself better than you. Have confidence and faith in yourself that you will be successful. But I can assure you, the picture of success that you have when you're younger will be different than what that success looks like when it's when in, when you're more mature and that's a good thing that is a positive thing you should look forward to that and be excited about what that's going to look for like therefore that will drive the confidence you need to have and get there and be successful as you go forward and the other thing is we talked about this early even in people who are in new to the workforce or, or kind of getting their career started have your support group around you. And if you're younger, have someone who's more mature in your, in your support group. And it's not because that person's going to tell you, well, the way I did it, you know, we've all heard the story about how our fathers walked back and forth to school in the snow with no shoes, you know, all of that type of stuff. That's not what I'm looking for. You're looking for people who can bring ideas and energies and a different perspective that will help you uh, be more confident in making the right decisions keep those people and they will change in their lives. I mean, people you have and when you're 20 and 30 will be different than the people that are your advisors at 40 and 50. And that's okay, but continue to have that network around you because we all need it. And as I say, everybody sees entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs and say, boy, that person, that person, a good entrepreneur is not just one person. They have a team behind them. Whether they're going to admit it or not, we all have good teams behind us. 
That is a perfect finale, Steve. I thank you so much for participating on this podcast. And for those that want to follow your next journey, maybe you could just plug the, uh, the website of Mob and uh, I'll tell everyone that they can follow you on LinkedIn as well. It's uh, mobbeauty.com and we're on LinkedIn. Website is a holder place and website is, is up and uh, we're excited about moving forward. Thank you very much and appreciate your time, Ilan, and look forward to getting together soon. Absolutely. That'll be a a welcome change. (laughs) Thanks, Steve. Thanks a lot. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.